Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com slash give. Enjoy the message. How y'all doing? You're all right? Good, good, good. All right, my name is Mark, as Ben said, and I am from Canada. Any Canadians? No? Okay. Uh, Vancouver, Canada, uh, good to be with you guys, and uh, especially if you aren't really into church, if uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity, exploring Jesus, you're new, uh, special welcome to you. You're kind of, uh, kind of my close to my heart, kind of started a church to reach people like you. That was my life and story growing up. I never walked to a church until I was about 19, and uh, part of the reason was I, I'd become a Christian when I was 17, and uh, my vision of Christianity was just like, okay, I'll just kind of do it by myself and kind of sit outside and read the, you know, read the Bible and smoke cigarettes and tell people about Jesus. And that was kind of my life. And one of the reasons I never wanted to go to church is because I thought it was going to, what was in my brain was it was going to be just shag carpet. The average age was going to be two or three hundred years old and uh, it was going to smell like mothballs. And uh, I just really didn't kind of want that with my life. And then finally someone dragged me to church and it was exactly like that. The first church I ever walked into, it was like literally orange shag. The guy up preaching was like, ah, turn your I think he was dying. And it, but there was this beautiful girl up front. And she was singing. She was blonde. She's like, my Jesus. And I'm like, I'm in the church. Legit. I'm in. Put me on the greeting team. All right. So uh, that was kind of my life. And uh, ended up uh, becoming a pastor, which is kind of crazy. Uh, and starting a church up in Vancouver, which is kind of crazy because no one uh, in Vancouver likes Jesus. So it was kind of like, why am I doing this? Um, but we did that, and, um, and it's been a blast. I mean, one of the things I want to talk to you about is kind of um, three priorities that you've got to figure out in your life in order to get to the end. Anybody can start something. How are you going to get to the end and still love Jesus? How are you going to you know, have a functional marriage? How are you going to be healthy? How are you going to do work well, money well, parenting well? All of the things that God has given us to do. How, anybody can kind of start something, be good on the first day, but are you going to be there on the last day? And the only way to do that is really to prioritize your life around a few things. Uh, there's a guy named Greg McEwen wrote a book called Essentialism, and basically it's about the fact that if you just have a bunch of stuff going on, you're not going to be able to really do any of them well. You can do a lot of things poorly. How do you actually take some and do three or four things well in your life? Uh, because there's so many things you could do. We literally live in a culture now, uh, sociologists call it the paralysis of choice, which is basically we have so many choices, we don't know what to do. If you take someone who's dating now, uh, it's, it's a lot of options. You go on your app and you're like, man, I like, I like Sarah, she got the blonde hair, and then I like this one, she got the brunette hair, she got the good personality, she likes hiking, and you got a lot of choices and you become paralyzed. There's just so many people you could date, whereas a hundred years ago, you dated one of the 12 girls in your town that wasn't your sister. You were just like, all right, who, who am I going to marry? All right, it's you, I guess. That was it. And so now, now it's like there's so many choices no one knows what to do. And that's going to be your life. You're going to become frozen if you, got, you can't, can't figure out what are the three or four things I'm going to be really good at. So I wanted to try to set up in my life and in my church three priorities that said, these are the three things my life's going to be about. These are the three things my church is going to be about. And so I want to share them with you and kind of work them with you through Matthew chapter 16 because they're all in there. So if you've got a Bible, Matthew 16, I'll work through it in the notes as well. So Matthew 16, basically a story Jesus goes out. First thing it says in verse 13 is when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And what's really 
really important about Caesarea Philippi is because the backdrop to these three points is the mission of Jesus, and that is seen in the word Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place all the pagans hung out. They weren't the Jews. They weren't the Christians. They weren't the religious people. They weren't the safe, nice people. Jesus went to the, the unsafe places. Jesus took risks in his life. Jesus went out to the, where the Christians weren't. And some of you, you've built way too much of an easy life where all you care about is getting a boat, your square footage, redoing the kitchen, and that's nonsense in regard to what Jesus has actually called you to do in your life, to be on mission, to go to Caesarea Philippi, to do the things that are risky. Do you have any risk in your life at all? What I'm talking about is the kind of life where you do things where if God doesn't show up, you're going to fall flat on your face. If you don't have those things, if your life isn't defined by that, then Christianity is going to be boring to you. Some of you, you think Christianity is boring. You're like, why am I in this? I don't really get it. It's because you're not actually living a risky life. You're not living a life where you're on the edge. You've created, and this is what we love to do in Christianity. I noticed it right when I came into the church. People love the safety, the comfort. We create all these little subcultures, Christian, Christian music and Christian art and Christian movies and Christian, all these Christian-y things, and it's all safe, right? It's because we don't want to go to Caesarea Philippi. We want Caesarea Philippi to come to us. We want people who don't know Jesus to come to us. We don't want to go to them. And so we live these, I remember when I first came to the church, God was like, hey, you should come and join my Christian soccer league. I was like, that's a thing? You know there's like real soccer leagues, right? Where like people are just playing soccer. And he's like, no, no, no. This is Christian soccer league. All right. And I'm like, well, what is it? He goes, it's a great strategy. What we do is every church puts a, puts a soccer in the uh, soccer team in the league and then we all play each other, but we get the one non-Christian that we know and we bring him into the team. He's called the witness player. All right. Now, usually it's right. It's going to be like a really good soccer player. It's not like the crappy non-Christian guy. It's like the really good non-Christian guy. And we'll get him and the Baptist team will play the Presbyterian team will play the Pentecostal team and we all got our witness players that we're praying for and at the end of the season maybe they accept Christ and it's going to be great and they'll help us win the championship and so what do they do they kind of this literally my buddy said it all fell apart the day that they're playing this game and the Baptists you know they're playing and the guy kicked the ball and it shot over the net he totally missed it and he just freaked out and he's like F he screams this big swear f-bomb and it just echoes through the whole field and all the Christians in the stadium are like, <gasps> and they just go dead quiet, right? And he goes, it's okay, I'm the witness player, all right? And it's like, all right, this is not a good mission plan, all right? So, but, but that's what we tend to do, is we're like, okay, we're going to do Christian-y things and hope that the world will find them cool. And that's what we try to do in the church. And the reality is, Jesus went to the places that were risky. And the question is, is that what you do with your life at all? Or do you play a safe life? where you hedge your bets and you make sure everything's good and everything's safe and everything's domesticated and normal and everything has its spot spiritually, emotionally, your families organize your biggest priorities in life are making sure everybody's safe, 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 safe for the whole family. And that was not what Jesus was doing. And so that's the backdrop to these three big things. And then the first one, in the light of that mission, is the gospel. And so he says, goes on, he says, who do people say the son of man is? And they reply, Elijah and the different prophets. And then he says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is the most important part of this whole thing, because what Peter has and what you need to have is a real understanding of the gospel, that he's saying, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, you're the one who's going to come and atone for sin, you're God who's living a perfect life in our place, you died on a cross instead of us, for us, and because of us, 
and you took the wrath of God in yourself. You died for sin. You shed your blood. And then you rose again. You didn't just die. You rose again to give us life. And that reality needs to define your life. It was the essential reality of our church. Everything revolves around that at our church. Every sermon is about that. Everything about our life. And it needs to be about your life. You need to start out with an understanding that you're sinful and in need of God. You needed Jesus to come and actually be Jesus for you. Because if you tried to do religion, religion says you need to earn your way up to God. You need to be a good person, climb the mountain. The gospel says no. God came down the mountain for you. Lived a perfect life in your place because you could never live that life. Because you were sinful. You are, and if you doubt your sinful, listen, in Canada, when I planted a church, I was supposed to be really nice because Canadian are nice, right? So it's like, hey, welcome to my church. I'm sorry, we're here. All right, so it's like that. That's Canada. It's like, sorry, sorry, everything's sorry. And so, but I started church. I was like, no, I had to make sure everybody knew they were sinful because if you don't know you're sinful, then you're never going to fly to Jesus. You're never going to understand why you should treasure Christ because you don't think you're all that bad, but you are. And if you doubt your own sinfulness, if you doubt the sinfulness of humankind, just look at your children. They're little narcissistic, individualistic little... Like, I got three kids. I got an 8-year-old. I got a 10-year-old. I got a 12-year-old girl. I mean, these girls are, they, they will play one parent off against each other. They, like, my wife and I will be fighting because of something they said, and they're all in the corner. All right, they are. My buddy told me the other day, it's not a joke, he told me the other day that his son, so his son's this tall, okay? I don't know what grade he's in. He's, like, grade 2 or whatever. And, uh, and he was at school, and he said, hey, my, he came up with this plan. All right, nobody knew the plan. It was like, hey, mom, if you, if you drop me off Monday, Tuesday at school, and I'm ready, ready to go when you pull up at 2.30, backpack on, good. Everything's good Monday, Tuesday. Can you show up at 3 o'clock, half an hour late on Wednesday so I can just hang out with my friends? And she's like, yeah, fine, whatever. So Monday, perfect. Tuesday, perfect. So she drops him off Thursday, gets to school, picks him up late Wednesday, gets to school Thursday. Her girlfriend says, hey, well, I, I saw your son, and he was, he was walking down the road. And he had like this big, like, large like coke in his hand he was like drinking it while he's walking she's like what what are you talking about no one's he's never walked anywhere by himself what do you mean he's this tall he's like yeah i know but he, i don't know he's walking down the middle of the road on the sidewalk he had this big she's like what so she sat him down thursday night she's like you look at me what happened my friend saw you she's like no 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 so she tortured her for two hours and then he goes okay here's what i did what he did is three weeks in advance he devised a plan he would steal a dollar, so this was a preemptive crime. One dollar, two dollars, three dollars from her purse every single day, and he stored it away. And then he came up with a plan. Literally, what happened was 2.30, the bell rang. He ran down half a mile down the road from his school. We're not talking like podunk forest, too. This is a busy road, okay? Main street, cars everywhere. Walks down to McDonald's, okay? Half a mile down the thing. Walks in McDonald's, orders a combo. Okay? He can't even see over the counter. It'd be like, hey, combo. All right? gets, gets the combo, sits down in the middle of the restaurant by himself, eats a whole meal, and then walks back to school, finishing his Coke, throws his Coke out, and his mom picks him up. These kids are wicked. Right? <laughs> All right, children, it's, you're, you're, the Bible says that you're born into iniquity. You are sinful. All right, every single one of you is just that. It's just a little more blue collar. You are narcissistic. You are into yourself. You are turned in. Everything about the universe is about you, 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 you. That's why you need God in the end. Because you're separate from God and nothing you can do. It doesn't matter how good you are. You could never gain enough righteousness to get into the presence of God, which is why the whole message of the church gives people, crushes people, which is what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The problem with that message is you're not Jesus. So you know what it does? It doesn't liberate you. It crushes you. 
What would Jesus do? I'm not Jesus. That's why you needed Jesus to be Jesus for you. That's the point. You are the son of God. You are the son of the living God. You are the one who came. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to set us free. And here's the beautiful part about that. When you base your life on that, rather than trying to be a good person, it sets you free from multiple things. It sets you free from comparison. You don't compare your life to other people now, which is going to crush you, by the way. The main thing in life is comparison, and especially in our social media world, where I do a lot of marriage counseling. I love actually doing marriage counseling because I, I feel like I can be used and helped in people's lives to help them in their marriage. And one of the biggest things I see are couples come in, and they once I get behind the issue, I realize here's what they're doing. They're comparing to a life that's not real. They're scrolling through Instagram, all right? And the wife's like, you know, the husband's like, hey, you know, you're not, you know, you don't, you don't look the way you looked when we got married. I'm just saying, I don't want to be mean. I'm just saying, but I noticed on Instagram that Tom's wife looks just the same as when they got married. And I noticed that's not you, all right? And then she's like, yeah, because you happened to me, fool, all right? That's why. <laughs> you wanted kids. You wanted to get married. Have you been married to you before? All right, you don't know what that's like, fool, all right? And then she's like, yeah. You know what I've noticed? Or I've noticed Tom takes his wife and family to Hawaii three times a year. When's the last time we did that, Jack? All right? And then all of a sudden, what you got are two people, and they're comparing. Right? Why don't you make more money? You should make more money than Tom. You, you, you disgust me. Well, you disgust me. And all of a sudden, you got a world where they're comparing. But the beauty of the gospel, you shouldn't compare yourself to anybody. God wired you, made you. You should be, as a couple, you should be Adam and Eve in the garden. Here's the beautiful thing about Adam and Eve in the garden, by the way. There were no other options. All right? It was like, Adam, okay, here's you're going to marry Eve. And he's like, okay, Eve or giraffe. I'll take her, all right? It's like, that should literally be how you function in the context of your marriage. You have you, you have eyes for your wife and your wife only, all right? And, and all of her flaws and all of her, and she's got lots of them, I know. Doesn't matter. And your husband, you have your heart and your, and your eyes for your husband alone. You do not look at other people because this is who God has brought you together with. And that's it. No comparison. The gospel sets you free because it says you are beloved just as you are in Jesus Christ. That's your identity. You don't have to earn it. That's liberating. That's beautiful. Then you don't have to win that fight. You don't have to be successful. You don't have to, you, 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 you work hard not to earn something, but from something. That's the beauty of it. And so we begin to realize, the other thing it does is sets you free from the failures in your life. And you've got a lot of them. You guys are a disaster, right? I look out, I see you, you're a wreck. Look at you. <laughs> Get used to this. This is how I talk to my church. People are like, how do you, do my, how do you raise money? I, I literally, the last money talk, we had to raise $10 million in six months. Now we've got to raise 40, which is a problem, because we've got to build a building, $50 million building. And so uh, if you've got any squared away, let me know. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> So we had to raise 10 million, and literally they were like, well, what was your money talk? It was, I literally looked at my church and said, stop being non-contributing zeros. You all sit there, you come late, you leave early, you give nothing. Stop being cheap or go to another church. Let's pray. <laughs> For, you know. and, uh, and everyone's like, okay, just take it, all right? It was... Because that's the honest truth. There's a lot of you who just freeload, right? You know it costs money to keep the lights on in here, right? Like people have jobs. This stuff all costs money. You show up, you leave early. You're, you're, you're consumers. You're non-contributing zeros, all right? So, but the gospel comes in. And then you get... And then you get liberated and you get, you say, okay, now my money gets freed up because Jesus died for me and my identity's in him and I don't need to earn. And so now you're more generous. 
And now you have the ability. And so it sets you up for all of these mistakes that you make, all these failures in your life. And I have a lot of them. I've made a lot of mistakes in ministry. I make a lot of, any parents in the room? How many parents are in the room? Right? Yeah. It's like you make mistakes. Parenting is there to remind you why the gospel needs to be true. Right? Because you fail. I literally, uh, last summer, I wanted my kids to watch Jurassic Park. So I was like, I love Jurassic Park. I'm like, kids, I'm going to take you. And everyone's like, do not take them to that movie. They're too young. I got a seven-year-old who's a little emotionally, you know, fragile already. And then I got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old at the time. I'm like, no, they have to watch Jurassic Park. So not only did I watch it, like on my little TV, I found my buddy. He's got a big screen, really big sound. Anyways, so we go watch Jurassic Park. And uh, it was interesting because then what unfolded, I ended up um, recording because so it was... My kids are funny. And then, oh, it's not loading. Uh, that one's not loading. Anyway, they cry a lot. Um, <laughs> my youngest ends up crying, and she hasn't slept since. So the point is, is that. We all do things that are a disaster and a mess, and we need to be forgiven of them. These failures, these terrible things that happen in our life. The gospel comes in and goes, don't compare yourself to other people, and don't be defined by your mistakes, because you're going to make a lot of them in life. And if you live and let your identity be your mistakes and the things you've done wrong, in those moments, you're living like you're religious. And there's religious people in this room, even if you've grown up in the church, you function religiously. You think that if you do this and this and this, God's going to love you more. The beautiful thing of the gospel is when you believe in Jesus, he loves you and filters you through the person and work of Jesus, not through the person and work of yourself. That's the beautiful part of the gospel. And you've got to define your life by it. It changes everything about you. Okay, so the second thing then, after you've understood the gospel and defi- it's, it's defined your heart, it's defined your life. Um, the second thing is, is community. And I realized I had to define my life by community because if I just believe in Jesus, great. But in our very um, uh, individualized, democratized kind of world privatization, we love kind of saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I have to walk with Jesus myself. And the priority of the community is, no, that's actually never what the Bible does. It gives every image of community. It's communal. Uh, the church is communal. It's like family and body and temple. They're all communal images where you can't live a life where you're trying to follow Jesus all by yourself. You've got to be part of a community because that's where the power is. And so the reality is over and over and over again, here's what we do. We try to say, yeah, but I'm going to come to community. I kind of try to live my life on my own. And the Bible really doesn't let you do that. It makes you enter in, which means people are going to hold you accountable. People are going to say, hey, this is what you need to do with your life. And your sin can't be just you anymore. It actually affects other people. And there's a domino effect. There's people who are calling you out. So I constantly look at my church. I mean, the beautiful thing about this, look at Jesus. He says, um, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's community. I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, my called out people. I'm not just calling individuals to believe in me. I'm going to build something called the church, the group of people who believe in me in the world. And what are they going to do? He says, I tell you, you're Peter, and I'll build my church. And then he says, I, give, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What he's trying to say is you have responsibility, not your leaders, not uh, celebrity Christians. I will give you the keys. You are the church. Your job is not to hope that 40 staff members do your job, but Jesus goes, I'm giving you the keys. Now, what often we do, we want to hand the back to him and say, you take it. He's going, no, you have all the responsibility in the world. 
to be the church. You want to figure out how your friends are going to get reached for Jesus? It ain't going to be at 9 and 11 on a Sunday. It's going to be on a Wednesday afternoon with you in your house because it's your job, not your pastor's job, to do the mission of the church. And when, when is the mission actually become successful? It's when the church comes alive. I have created an ecclesia, not a guy on a stage entertaining a bunch of people who do nothing, but a bunch of people who go, I have to be on mission because I'm the church. I look at my church all the time. They're like, hey, my buddy's got sin. Can you, uh, you know, meet with him? What, what my meeting is your buddy. You, I'm busy. <laughs> I got movies to watch. Read Matthew 18, right? Read Matthew 18. Your buddy's caught in sin. What do you do? You go over and say, hey, Tom, stop cheating on your wife. And he's like, oh, I don't want to. He goes, okay, what do you do? You bring two or three friends over. Tom, stop cheating on your wife. Oh, why'd you bring them? They're going to tell everybody. Well, that's the job. And then he says, third level, take it to the church. Doesn't say take it to the elders. Doesn't say take it to the bishops. Doesn't say take it to the pastors. Take it to the church. Why? Because it's your job to be the church. That's where the power is. Right? You look at the greatest move of the Spirit of God is happening right now in China. In the history of the world, the Spirit's never moved like it's moving in China right now, where Christianity is basically illegal, where they nationalize the buildings, kill pastors and persecute them. Why? Because the church comes alive because they take the buildings, because they take the leaders. And now no one can do it vicariously, so you've got to do it. Jesus says, you take the keys. Stop being lazy. Stop doing nothing and hoping other people do it in your place. I'll give you the keys. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You have massive responsibility in this world to actually do what Jesus has given you. And that's the beauty of community. His community goes, okay, I'm going to help you get there. And some of you are like, yeah, but you know, I could, I could never get there because I'm not talented enough. Because I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted enough. That's a joke. That's an excuse. Let me tell you something. When I gathered 16 people in my house to start a church, to try to reach people like me who'd grown up, you know, in, uh, in atheistic homes, agnostic homes, unchurched homes, I really wanted to be, it wasn't going to work. The reason it wasn't going to work is because I was 29 years old and running shoes in a hoodie, and all I wanted to do was yell at everybody and tell them their lives are a disaster. And it wasn't going to work because I have Tourette's, and Tourette's Tourette's, I've shared, I shared with you guys, I think last time I was here, um, so when my parents got divorced when I was 9 or 10 years old, I went through such a psychological trauma that the doctor said, that's why I got Tourette's. That's why my face kind of tweaks around, my body tweaks around, does weird things. Tourette's, if you don't know what it is, is not a way to be cool in high school. All right? It is like you randomly do habits, right? you say swear words randomly. Like when I was growing up, I'd be going on the bus, I'd just be like, F! All right? And it's like, what the? You know, it's like, like not the letter F, the word. And... Uh, <laughs> Here's the one job you're never going to have if you randomly swear at people, all right? Preacher. That's not going to work, all right? You're never going to be a pat. It's not going to work for anybody. It's like, ah, I'm not old enough to go to that church yet. It's 18A. It's crazy. I can't wait for my birthday. It's nuts because it's not going to work. It's never going to go. And so the, the reality is my church now is all video. So I preach one time at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then all the other services are video. And so uh, they go on these big movie screens. And so four or five of our sites are on movie screens. So people come in, and I'm, tw I'm 20 feet tall on the movie screen, which sucks for me because I go in, and, you're, and usually when you're watching a movie, you're so, your brain is so used to, like, Brad Pitt's perfect face. He's like, hey, what's going on? And so now I'm up there, and I'm tweaking my face around and making weird body moves. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't even look at this. And how many times have I said, Lord, here's the thing. Just take this from me. 
take it, take it, take it, take it. Because I'm going to be way more effective at trying to reach unchurched people in Canada. If you just take this, think me because I'm tweaking around, it's dumb. And you know what he does? Same thing, first, you know, first Corinthians, Paul says, take this thorn in my flesh, take it, take it, take it, take it. And you know what God says every single time? Nope, I like it. <laughs> I like that you look t- dumb. You look silly, just tweak, 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 tweak. I like it because, you know, last weekend, 91 people got baptized. We did this thing called Church in the Park. 91 people got baptized on a single day. 50 on the spot. In Canada, that doesn't happen. And you know what's beautiful about that? 91 people get baptized, and any temptation I had to go, oh, my sermon must have been fantastic. I just looked back at the video. I'm like, yeah, God loves you. It's like, yeah, I love that. Why? Because you look dumb, and I look big. And that's what he wants. Because when you look small, he looks big. And that's who gets the credit. That's the reality. Some of you are so egotistical. You walk around like you're... This is the crazy narrative of the Western world. You're a self-made man. You're a self-made woman. You made some great strategic choices in business. And that's why you're doing so great. It has nothing to do with anybody else. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I worked hard. No, bro. Here's the reality. God decided not to kill you last night. That's the only reason you're sitting here right now. God decided to not kill you. And I'm not sure, you, I'm not sure tomorrow's for sure. <laughs> who, who do you think you are? Your ego must die in the face of the gospel, in the face of community, in the face of the power of the reality. You, are, you, God, you take your little scraps and you hope that God can take them and use them, not because of you, but in spite of you. That's the power of it. Collectively together, though, we do something amazing. Now, the last piece is culture. And why, and why I prioritize my life around culture, my church around culture, why I think you should prioritize your life around culture is because to believe the gospel and to join a church and be part of a community that holds you accountable and spurs you on is great. But to leave it there is not good. You have to do that unto something. And unto something is to change the world, to change the culture, to transform. Not to sit around in Christian enclaves and be happy and safe, but to actually go out and reform the world around you, to actually see the transformation of people. That's the point. And so what is God doing in your life? He's saying, hey, yes, you've been changed by Jesus. Yes, you're now in the context of a powerful thing. Now you've got to go transform some people. And there's two ways, two things, I think, and certainly we started our church to reach skeptics. There were two things that we went after, and I think these two things are important for you and the people around you. The first one is to transform the culture and the way that they think. So the way that people think is very important because w- here's what you got to understand. If you're a seeker and you're here and you're exploring Christianity and you're atheist or an agnostic or a naturalist or whatever, what you got to understand is Christianity offers you the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. It has way better answers than naturalism and atheism in regard to the main questions of life. Origins, meaning, morality, destiny, where we actually come from, where we're going, why we feel what we feel. Christianity has way better answers than atheism and naturalism do because you look at basic things. Like when I hang out with my... Atheist friends are like, yeah, God's not real. I go, really? Okay, where did you get, for instance, where did you get the idea of morality? Where did you get the idea that rape is wrong, murder is wrong? Where, where, where did this come about? It's an absolute moral standard that you believe. Where did it come from? If you have moral absolutes, then you have to have a moral lawgiver. And if anyone questions, because there's a great narrative in postmodern thinking where, no, 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 you know, um, uh, there is no absolute truth. There's just your truth and my truth and your truth and your truth. And don't project your cultural truth on me. You know, you, we all just need to have our own. And if anyone ever argues that with you, just, just chop them in the throat, right? And then, and then when they say, oh, why did you chop me in the throat? Go, dude, don't project your cultural values on me, all right? I feel 
really good when I chop people in the throat and I don't need your absolute standard projected on me, all right? I do what I do, I do me, you do. Say, that's the conversation. And if ever you doubt, if ever you doubt that there's moral reality, just cut in, some, in line at the grocery store and figure out whether anybody believes in morality, right? We were at Disneyland a couple years ago and there, we were standing, it was like a two and a half hour line and my wife was sitting there and this lady just walked in front of all of us and just stopped like three guys from the front. We've been there two hours. She walked in front of 80 people and we're like, what's going on here? And she stood beside this guy and this guy was sitting there on his phone and he was of a different ethnicity than her and most of the people. And I think that she was kind of playing on that. So he's like this. And my wife, who is like, she does not put up with this stuff. I put up with this stuff because I'm Canadian. I'm like, sorry, I got in your way. You know, I, <laughs> my wife's like, what is this lady? Right? And so she's like, excuse me, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, this is my husband. And the dude straight up looks at us, no accent, total English, goes, I don't know this woman. All right? <laughs> At which point, my wife just went Beauty and the Beast on this lady, all right? It was like, put the flares up, get this lady out of town, you know? We threw her out of the thing and got crazy. Listen, if anyone ever tells you morality's not real, the rea you just cut in line, you just, where did we get these absolute moral standards where we know this is right and we know this is wrong? You come from a moral standard giver. And if someone says to me, oh yeah, but the problem of evil and suffering, there's so much evil and suffering in the world, there's no way there could be a God. Really, let me ask you the question. I agree with you, it's one of the hardest things to answer in regard to Christianity. But here's the reality. Where did you even get the category called evil? by which you're putting God on trial. Because if all we did is develop moralistic frameworks from 200,000 years of, of animalistic instinct that programmed into our brain a certain wiring, then we would believe vastly different things than we believe. We would believe things that animals believe. And animals, have you ever watched the Nature Channel? Those things are crazy. Nature is nuts. And if we got our morality framed into our brain through action over time, we would believe vastly different things. You know, praying mantises, the female will have sex with the male, get what she needs, and then rip his head off. Nowhere did we go, I think this is a great idea, all right? We don't think like that. Why? Because your morality has to come from something that transcends nature, and it comes from something that does transcend nature. God actually put that. So the minute you want to put God on trial for evil and suffering, the question bites back and says, where did you get the category called evil? Where did you get the category called Who told you that that's evil? Who told you that that's suffering? Maybe that's just nature. Where, I mean, a lot of suffering in the world, according to the natural kingdom, is just beautiful because you need to eliminate weak things in order to get stronger. That's the whole point. And so the reality is it constantly pushed back on me and it bothered me as an atheist and an agnostic as I explored Christianity and then I began to realize man Christianity has the best idea in the marketplace of ideas because it answers all these questions so if you're someone who's a thinker and you're after you got to understand Christianity is not the thing that's for dumb people you got to know that we frame this constantly like right? you turn on the news you're like okay here's Richard Dawkins he's an Oxford professor and he will tell you the truth about things and then here's Joe Joe lives in a cave and thinks Oprah's the Antichrist. Hi, I'm a Christian. All right, and then you're like, oh my gosh, this is not a good debate, right? But that tends to be how they frame it. They frame it as Christian, stupid, everybody else, but it's not true. Christians have a lot of Christianity in the worldview, and the Bible has a lot of great answers for every reality that you see. So the second thing that I needed to do, and I'll leave this with you and pray for you, is that not only do you have to go after what people think, but you have to go after what people feel, because what they feel, and what you feel, actually, is more powerful than what you think. Your heart is more powerful than your head. And what I mean by that is every single decision you make in life is driven by your pleasure. Everything you decide. Where you sat today, all right, you're probably ticked off because that guy sat in your seat. You should have been two down. What's he doing? Who's this new guy? All right, that's the thing. 
uh, where you go for lunch this afternoon, who you married. It's all driven by your delight. It's all driven by your pleasure. That's how you make decisions in life. Well, what's great about Christianity, it comes along and says, it doesn't, it's not only true, but it works. It not only changes what you do, it changes what you want to do. It actually takes you and it affects how you feel. It gives you a hope that transcends circumstances, which is what you knew, because here's the reality, how you feel. Listen, there's a reason I hate doing marriages now, all right? I used to do, I did a hundred weddings before I, as a pastor, and don't tell my church this, because I am, you know, I'm a bad pastor, but that's just between us. Uh, I, I, I just got sick of going to weddings and sitting there in front of, you know, whatever, two people, and they're sitting there, and they're just so in love, and it's like, I love you, I love you, and you're like, yeah, I love you, you've known each other for nine months, you got some guy to hand me, hide behind a tree to take pictures of your engagement. Like, that was a thing when I was growing up. How, why is this a thing? No one cares, all right? When I was getting engaged, I got engaged, man. I was me and my wife by herself. We got engaged. We, to, we didn't have my buddy pop out behind the skating rink and be like, ha! It's like, oof, nobody cares. So I got sick of sitting in front of these kids, and they're like, Sarah and Tom. It's like, Tom, I love you. And I wrote a poem. Because they, they don't want to do traditional vows anymore because that's not cool enough. So I'm going to write a poem. Tom. <laughs> T. Terrific. <laughs> Shut up. Because here's the thing. All I want to do is take these two kids and fast forward 10 years. 10 years. Give me 10 years with them. All right. She hasn't touched Tom in a month. She knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, she got cereal in her hair. She's got jogging pants on. He comes home. Where's the groceries? I don't know. You had to FaceTime me again for potatoes? Are you this dumb? Go back. All right. And he goes back in an aisle four. There's a beautiful lady. She's got the eyelashes. Hey, Tom. She's beautiful. She's she got real pants on. She's like, <laughs> starts to like feel it inside. Like, ah, oh, it's butterflies. Aisle four, lady. My wife hasn't looked like that at me in a year. Mm. Dude, be careful how you feel because it can derail your life. You follow how you feel, it will destroy you. The gospel comes in and says, do not define your life by how you feel. How you feel this moment will change from that moment. You have to actually covenant yourself to something that transcends how you feel. You have to give yourself to a God that says, you're going to covenant yourself to me and in the midst of any circumstances, in the midst of trial, in the midst of cancer, in the midst of a bad marriage, you have not tied yourself to worldly things. You've tied yourself to something that's not going to give you a good 76 years. It's going to give you a 76 million and 76 million after that. You've got to prioritize the right things because if you prioritize this world, this world is all you're going to get. And this is as good as it gets, by the way. And then you experience the wrath of God where even the common graces are taken from you. So in the end, you have two choices. You either base your life in the end when you stand before Jesus and you, he says, okay, there's one of two records you can put on the table right now to base your eternity on. You can base your own record and your own works and your own life or you can base my record and my works and my life for you. Which one do you want? Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.